This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the K to the Strong Style Podcast, 1037 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. I appreciate you listening in, however you're doing so. Be through 1037thegame.com, all the great podcast gimmicks we got in, especially that free mobile app. So let's waste a little time and get right down to brass tacks and get down to the headlines in all the world of professional wrestling with the three counts. And we start things off with Tessa Blanchard, apparently close to being all elite. According to sources, S.E. Scoops was the first one to kind of drop this, saying, it, quote, it's all but a formality that they'll sign in discussions that have been going on for over a month now that Tessa Blanchard, the former Impact Wrestling World Champion and former Knockouts Champion as well, she is on her way to AEW. Many believe AEW would stay away from Tessa Blanchard, given some controversies in her past, but if this report is to be believed, to be believed excuse me, it could be the exact opposite. And the site goes on to report that officials have discussed the idea of acknowledging her past and her prior issues on TV and presenting her with a redemption storyline. I'm intrigued by this, but I think this could all very well be about Daga, her husband, according to Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer newsletter that came out last week. Reports are saying that Daga could be signing with a major North American promotion very soon. So who's to say that isn't a joint deal with AEW to get both of them? Because I think Daga is absolutely a guy you need to have but I'm sure you can't have one without the other. It's like married with children used to say. Love and marriage goes together like horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other. Now I really want to want to watch some married with children after this is all said and done. But let's flip on over to NXT TakeOver Dublin. Apparently there are reports that it is going to be canceled or has been canceled. Because if you look at it in terms of purchasing tickets, if you're across the pond, because obviously with travel and all that stuff, you're not able to kind of have People from the United States jump over to Dublin in the midst of this uh, pandemic that we're still in. But according to Ticketmaster, the website lists the show as canceled while a three arena in Dublin has pretty much Thanos snapped this thing out of existence. There's not a single mention of the event on their calendar. The rescheduled show is set to take place on June 20th. And the cancellation shouldn't be a big surprise if it is true, especially because the COVID pandemic continues to roll on in UK and Ireland. And the Irish Tasha, which I'm hoping I pronounced that right for those in Ireland that are actually listening in. Michael Martin, who's basically the president of Ireland, for those who don't know what a Tasha is, set at a timetable for the lifting of lockdown restrictions, but no dates actually given when it comes to indoor mass gatherings. I'm sure maybe it'd be June, but it feels like best case scenario, you might as well just kind of punt this thing and move on down the road. This is kind of where I'm at on that. But it definitely is intriguing to see in another NXT TakeOver event, because it's supposed to be one of their big shows, I believe, right after Mania 36, and it just continues to get pushed back. Who's to say they even have an NXT TakeOver in Dublin? They could very well do something else, like a Liverpool or Blackpool, just depending on how things go with this pandemic going forward, because obviously around here, it feels like we're starting to get towards back to some form of normalcy. We just saw UFC have their first show with full fans. Now it'll be interesting to see how the COVID numbers turn out with those things, but that's a different conversation for a different podcast. One last bit of news in the world of sports entertainment involving Andrade, or the artist formerly known as Andrade, because he got announced for Federation Wrestling, one of many things he's been announced for, and this is something really huge. When it comes right down to it, it could very well be a key towards his future, because during the promotion's virtual press conference on Friday, he was announced as joining the company. He will main event the company's first show on June 19th as he teams with Roosh, Bestia Dering, and a mystery partner against Matt Taven, PJ Black, and two mystery partners. So this is going to be a really cool eight-man tag main event. In case you didn't know, Federacion Wrestling is created by Roosh and is reportedly the reason that CMLL decided to end their partnership with Ring of Honor because several ROH stars We'll be working that show, but you'll also are going to get an AEW tag team involved in the card as well. And this is going to be a banger if there ever was one. I would gladly pay hard-earned cash 
to see this one live in living color make the trip over to Mexico just just for that one match. And that is Penta El Cerro Miedo taking on Ray Phoenix. Oh, excuse me. It's Penta and Ray Phoenix squaring off with Dragon Lee and Bandito. Trust me, this is going to be a banger. Definitely, if you love high spots, this is the place to be. So make sure you find a way to be able to watch this. Once again, June 19th, Federacion Wrestling on tap. But he also has popped up in Mexico for AAA because at the end of the Red de Reyes show, he called out Kenny Omega for a title shot. It looks to be what is going to be happening at Triple Mania. No date at this time. It's usually around August, obviously, this year. I believe it was in December. So who's to say, you know, how this thing goes, obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic kind of plays in different ways. But definitely would love to see that match between Kenny Omega and Andrade. But he is a filling up the dance card as well. His first post WWE match that was announced this week is going to be against a controversial figure, Alberto El Patron, who definitely deserves the Dark Side of the Ring episode down the road. But man, oh man, that was cool. But then we also got something even more interesting with AAA, a potential another forbidden door being open with AAA inviting Diana Perrazzo. She popped up in the promotion as well during Rey de Reyes and setting up a potential title versus title match with Fabi Apache. Apache, excuse me. Just what the hell is going on? We need more of these title versus titles just so we can have these like belt collector angles because it's so kick-ass. Whenever we've just been seeing it so much over the last, let's say, like six to seven months, I am all the way here for it. All right, it's the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Let's go ahead and jump into AEW Dynamite. And it was a really interesting show with a lot of surprises, I think, in my mind, just in terms of the end result. Not huge, massive surprises like Sting showing up because TNT doesn't want surprises anymore in pro wrestling. And, you know, I can completely understand that. We have an opener between Hangman Page versus Brian Cage. Can't believe it took that long for us to finally get this. Maybe we'll finally get... Hangman Page, Diamond Dallas Page taking on Brian Cage and Christian Cage in a tag team match. Maybe we'll finally get that one down the road. But right out the gate, Page gets jumped and Cage kind of just picks at the bones. Team Taz comes in, tries to get a quick beat down, but the Dark Order saves the day. Adam Page is still able to kind of go in this match, so they get started. Cage dominates all throughout this contest. He drives Page into the corner for some shoulders to the ribs, toss over the top since Page crashed into the concrete. Then he had a belly to backdrop on the onto the apron. Hardest part of the ring looked brutal. And Cage again, just dominant throughout this match. Page managed to kind of rally back towards the end, but Cage hits him with a power bomb, then a buckle bomb, and then hits the drill claw for the win. Obviously, the pre-match antics kind of tipped their hand when it comes to the result. But I was still surprised at the fact they did this because they've been building up Hangman Page as one of their top guys in probably the next six to seven months is going to help. Probably earlier than that, if you really wanted to, you could have this be one of the big main events for All Out. You have it be a main event, and he takes the belt off of Kenny Omega. I think that would be the great payoff here. But it's all about what they do next with everything going on with all the titles. Who's to say Hangman Page has become this like mega champion where he wins like four different belts or somewhere along those lines. You just want to see how the story goes, but it feels like hangman is the guy that this pays off to because it's been built. The story has been built for almost a year for this exact moment to happen, but it'd be interesting to see how they follow up. Cause again, it was understandable what happened and why he lost, but you still sit there a little bit frustrated. If you're a fan of hangman. Now let's get to the tag team match or the Tag Team Eliminator, where it's the Young Bucks taking on Matt and Mike Seidel. And if the Seidels win, they get a title shot down the road. And this is a really just fun match, typical high-flying stuff, especially with these four guys. They're definitely more known for that. Mike spins out of a wrist lock right away to start, but Matt does the same of his own. Then they have a leg sweep, takes Matt Jackson down, but a standing moonsault hits Ray's knees. Just all around, back and forth, really cool stuff. They also had one really spot that made me just 
continue to remember why they have referees just look complete Melvins. At one point, when they come back from break, Mike and Nick hit a double clothesline, a little bit of a double down. Matt switched places with Nick, and the referee doesn't notice, but he winds up doing so after Matt nips up, but doesn't do anything about it. Makes the referee look like an absolute geek here, and it's probably one of my biggest critiques of the night was that moment. I was like, what the hell is going on? Why, why are we doing this? In 2021, the refs just continue to look a little bit underwhelming. The former Evan Bourne comes in with a brain buster for two on Matt Jackson before having to escape a Melter Driver attempt. Standing corkscrew moonsault gets two on Matt, and then a double standing Hurricane Rana takes the Bucks down. That was really cool, just the spots they had here at the end. The ref was distracted, then Mike gets punched. Johnny Cage-style low blow in the, in the ding-dong. And that just absolutely wasn't great. Double super kick puts Seidel on the floor. BTE trigger finishes off Mike. And the Young Bucks win. So the group doesn't, you know, the Seidels don't get a tag team title shot down the road. Perfectly understandable. And, you know, it wasn't spectacular. I enjoyed some of the stuff. But I think the moment with the referee took it took me out of it completely. Because I always have seen whenever rules get broken, it's like you never get to see any retribution for it. And when the Young Bucks are wrestling, they can do whatever they want, and apparently it doesn't matter because they'll just wind up winning. It's, like, pointless. Like, you've got to at least make it understandable. Hell, I would have loved to have seen a tag team title match between these two, but it further makes the side L's look like, you know, afterthoughts. Something that may be what they're trying to do in the first place, but that's just my opinion. Next up, we got Orange Cassidy taking on Penta El Cero Miedo. Right out the gate, Orange tries to stop the Cero Miedo shout, but Penta won't let him put his hands in his pockets. They do it again, and you're just wondering, you know, why they aren't hitting each other. Like, you want to see that. Then Penta throws the glove to Alex, the translator. Does it for the third time. Then Cassidy takes the sunglasses and tosses them to Trent. He doesn't even catch them, which is kind of funny. And the hands go into the pockets. Cassie does the lazy kicks, followed by an arm drag with his hands in the pockets. So it's definitely like your typical like old-school Orange Cassidy. I'm saying old-school because there's been moments where Cassidy has put together like really good, unique matchups. I mean, you can go back to the matches he had with Jericho. You had the hands-in-pockets gimmick, but this felt like you know the old-school version of Orange Cassidy. I feel like there were moments where it's like, okay, I get it. And it's definitely a good back and forth here. You know, Cassie tries to go for some different moves. A tilt world backbreaker by Cassie. By Penta takes down Cassie and then Penta bites his fingers. Cassie reverses into a crucifix for two. Knocks Penta outside. Then he hits a suicide dive. Then he catches him in a suicide dive. He goes into Gorilla Press. Penta switches to a one-hand version and drops Cassie onto the apron. Penta looked absolutely dominant in this contest. He absolutely deserves, like, more. And, again, I'm going back to the Cody finish for a big reason because this was exactly what I was talking about a while back without without they booked Penta, where they make him look like a badass with all these different maneuvers that he puts together. And then you do that. Like, what in the world are we doing where you have a guy not getting, not getting over, I should say, and not winning these big matches against people who are bona fide stars. I understand you can't really do a whole lot with him in terms of promos. That's why you have Alex being his translator. But it's like we never get to see him truly, and I mean absolutely, really truly, get over. And I'm hoping we can see more of that down the road. But, of course, it all comes down to towards the finish. Penta tries to get the arm breaker and snap it, but Cassie gets his hands in his pockets. Backup Canadian Destroyer drops Cassidy again. He can't, then OC counters into the beach break out of a fear factor, which was kind of cool, I'm not going to lie. Penta's shoulders aren't down, so no count. Penta comes back with a super kick. Cassidy shoves him away, then hits a top rope DDT, followed by the very tornado DDT for two. Alex, Tran- Alex tries to say something about Trent's mom. Cassidy pulls him inside after a mic shot, hits the orange punch, to finish Penta. Again, no problem with Cassidy winning. He deserves it. But, man, it's another really, 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 really bad loss for the other half of Lucha Bros. I mean, why do we continue to have these infuriating finishes 
that kind of like neutered to a certain extent one of the top guys in AEW. Then we get to the Inner Circle Parlay. It starts off, Tony brings out the two groups who come out flanked by motorcycle riding security guards. It's the final push for next week's Blood and Guts. This is the go-home show. I can't wait for the match, by the way. I don't even care about how much I haven't necessarily liked the build. Just to see the match itself and add the fact that they had one of my favorite bands, Nonpoint, be part of the hype video they put out on Sunday, I was like, hell yeah. I mean, I am a huge fan of Nonpoint, and I think that's pretty much been since, I think, the SmackDown Raw 07 soundtrack. I, I can remember playing that game a lot and hearing it. I also remember hearing them a lot on the radio in, like, 2006 when I was a senior in high school and just remembering those days. And every time I hear, like, To the Pain or even some of the newer stuff, the newer stuff is still damn good, even though it's not the same kind of original members. It's so good. But enough about non-point. Let's get back to wrestling. Sean Spears yells at Sammy Guevara to start asking if he's ready for this match. Sammy takes the mic away from him, saying he doesn't believe in Spears, and he says Spears is going to fail once again at Blood and Guts. FTR calls out Santana on Ortiz, saying Santana has a new daughter at home. And Uncle Dax says to him that her daddy isn't coming back home. The fight is just about to get on, and MJF calls him off so he can talk to Chris Jericho. And it was Jericho who calls this company if you found this. But next week, it's time for MJF's family to take Inner Circle's place. And MJF is looking down at Jericho's bloody body. He'll thank him for the spot. And Jericho kind of cuts a promo talking about everything that MJF was saying when he was mentioning MJF's age, including jerking the curtain for WCW and working in Mexico, saying that the Inner Circle has his back. Jake Hager kept him from being assassinated in Abu Dhabi, which may have been a little bit more of a a work shoot there, but still, really great line. And said MJF is going to have to kill him to make him quit. So the war is on, and MJF is going to be looking up for the only spot he deserves. This is my only knock here, because it was really good. Like The entire selling point of all the drama was tremendous. But why did we have to have everybody cut a promo? You didn't need to have all the guys cut a promo. You could have just had Jericho and MGF with the other guys standing there, standing on their side to make sure in case things go down, they're ready to go. Because again, MGF and Jericho get 100% sell a feud on their own. You didn't need all the other guys. Again, it's great to have other guys have kind of that that reasoning why they're feuding with so-and-so. But at the end of the day, if you're two feuding stables, your two leaders should just be able to have it out in a promo battle. And you don't have to have four or five different people have their own little mini promos. It would have done a lot better to have just those two. You didn't even need Tony Schiavone. Just have Jericho MGF cut a promo, a town hall style, and just have that thing work. I would have loved to have seen that a lot more than, you know, again, no knock against guys like Jake Hager, Wardlow, or anything. Like It's really good. It was really good stuff. MGF continues to be great. And Santana Ortiz did a great job as well being baby faces. But I want to see more out of some of these guys. And it's just the fact that I felt like there was too much going on. And I would have loved to see that be more of a, hey, let's give these guys a promo during AEW Dark or the Road 2 promo. That way you can have even more of a rooting interest if you love those kind of things. Because, again, the, the Road 2s they put together for these big shows are always tremendous. I think it's something I, I would love to see. I know it's probably would be a lot tougher to do if you're an independent promotion, but to do something like that would be pretty doggone cool. Now let's flip it over to the main event of the night because I didn't care that much for the Nightmare Factory and what's going on with the Nightmare Family. I I can definitely kind of pass on that, at least for a little while. I want to see more of it, especially involving Cody. Cody did show up after the match and good stuff, but just not my favorite thing. Not my biggest cup of tea. Then also, you know, the... Michael Nakazawa, Eddie Kingston thing, I will gladly pass on. I don't need that angle. That was just kind of, it is what it is. Omega's gotten better on the mic. That's fine. But I want to get to the main event, because that was something that I'm always going to take away, is the fact they are building Darby Allin to be the fighting champion. He had a hell of a match in the main event. TNT title on the line. Number 10 takes on Darby Allin. And it's right out of the gate. It's that David versus Goliath, where where Darby's having to work under... 10 and he had the big guy just dominating right from the gates 
he spun a headlock into a backbreaker, which looked awesome. Darby tried to hit the chop block, didn't do anything. Ten throws him down again. And then Ten hit a gut buster out of break and then got pulled into the Fujiwara armbar. Alan cranks back on the fingers, but Ten managed to send him to the outside. And a drive sends Allen to the barricade. And it's time for Sting and the Dark Order to yell at each other, which is always fine. And then Ethan Page post Allen, allowing Ten to just go ahead and hit a really nice slingshot onto Darby for two. The full Nelson gets on, but then Allen climbs the ropes and almost does the. It's very much close to the Roddy Piper Bret Hart the Bret Hart finish. Like it's definitely that kind of finish. And I love the fact they're doing this. And again, it's continuing to be a story where he's just going to win by any means necessary. After the match, Darby held up a protein wristband and showing the mutual respect 10 and the Dark Order has for Darby Allen and Sting. Scorpio Sky blindsided Sting in the ring. Ethan Page joined in. But then you had Lance Archer and 10 make the save. They cleaned house. And Jake Robert walked out to join them after the heels ran away. So it's a little weird to see Jake Roberts be a face, but makes perfect sense, and I understand the entire reason why. Overall, really solid show of Dynamite. I didn't care that much for some of the undercard. That's why I kind of skipped over it. But I'd still say, the matches I bring up, those are the ones you absolutely have to watch. Before we get to NXT... I got to say this. Happy belated birthday. We're taping this on May the 3rd, by the way. But happy belated birthday to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, undoubtedly the biggest draw in the history of the world right now. The movie star that everybody was wanting to see for years be this megastar. He is finally the megastar that we all thought he was in pro wrestling. But it's his 49th birthday. He's turned 49. Next year, he'll be 50. And that got me thinking, obviously... The show is taped on Monday. His birthday was Sunday. I wanted to kind of look back at some of my favorite moments of The Rock. And if you got some of your favorite moments, hit us up on our Cajun Strong Style Twitter account, at Cajun Strong Style, C-A-J-N Strong Style. All one word. We can't have the U in there for some reason or another. Twitter, just let us add one more character to the username, please, for the love of God. Because that would make things a whole hell of a lot easier. But it is what it is. So going back to this, I... just was going back at so many, you know, he has probably some of the greatest promos of all time, period. So I'd say probably, you know, the Armageddon Hell in a Cell backstage interview. That's a phenomenal promo. I'd also probably wind up going with him talking about Big Show, Undertaker, and Kane. That promo on SmackDown was really, really good with him being like, I won. I won. That's I, I, I. Every time I watch that promo, I just kill myself laughing. It is so damn good. And I love everything that I've seen from the Rockers as promo work. The burial of Billy Gunn. But my name's Billy. It, it just kills me. The I, All of his lines, it doesn't matter if you smell. All that stuff's great. But at, at the end of the day, it's his promos that everybody's going to wind up remembering. And there's so many of them. Those are just a handful of the ones that I love the most. I'd probably also say the rock concert is a the first one. The, the second one, it felt watered down and PG-ish. The one he had on Raw in Sacramento, like leading into, I believe this was the Gold, it was either, I can't remember now, but I think it was the Goldberg feud, if I'm not mistaken. Either that or he did it leading into the match with Austin. Either way, it was 2003, and it was so damn good. In terms of matches, I think the one that stands out to me, and you've heard me talk about this before, despite the finish, it's Rock Austin Mania 17. That one's always going to be my favorite. And yes, 19 is a great one that helps end the era that Stone Cold and The Rock helped build. That's some cool stuff. People may hate on it, but Halftime Heat is a guilty pleasure of mine. I reviewed it a while back on the pod. You can check it out in our archives. We actually reviewed that one right after the Super Bowl. I actually wound up watching it during halftime. While the weekend was performing, so that was that was kind of cool. I think I'd recommend you go check that out when you get a chance. But in terms of non-mania stuff, I'd say any Rock Triple H match, a lot of stuff in the two thousand, like the year two thousand, he had nothing but bangers and main events that were fantastic. The two thousand Royal Rumble was really good for him. I'd say Angle Rock No Mercy two thousand stands out for me for a lot of reasons. It's probably one of the first like true 
WWF pay-per-views I can remember because I was more of a, I think I mentioned this before. I grew up more as a WCW guy. I think I was, I can remember watching my first show was WWF, but it was more kind of indoctrinated thanks to my dad and my uncle into being more of a WCW guy versus WWE. I was more, uh, I wanted flipping channels, especially as WCW went down the drain and during the summertime, because whenever I was growing up, I usually would go to bed early, so I'd miss like the last hour raw. But my dad would always tell me, oh, wait, here's what happened last night. So he'd give me the lowdown on what happened the next night. Like, that's what I always loved about how like it was with me and my dad, especially like the next day, like when he'd bring me to school or whatever. We'd be listening to sports radio, and then he'd be telling me, oh, wait, here's what happened on Raw last night. Here's what happened during the main event, you know, especially like during the invasion angle. I can remember him like telling me all these different things that happened during the invasion. I was like, what? What what happened? Like how did this how did this all come about? Like whenever Stephanie McMahon was revealed as the owner of ECW, that was like a holy hell moment. That was a major you know mark out moment for everybody. But that's how I always remembered watching wrestling, like the late nineties, early two thousands. Because I was still young, and my parents wanted me to go to bed at a decent time. More power to them. Now I go to bed at like midnight. That's a different conversation for a different day. But honestly, you know, The Rock was never a five star machine, but he got you invested and wanted you to make you want to tune in to see what he was going to do next. And it was for all the right reasons. And I can just tell you right now, I was thinking about it like a few days ago, looking back at the 2011 year, 2011 in wrestling was not on the whole great. There were moments where stuff, when it worked, it worked gangbusters. A lot of stuff in impact was getting at moments where it was really, really good. It was the, the next year they wound up getting a lot better with Austin Aries, even though he's a complete bag. He had some really good stuff the next year, but they were building towards some awesome stuff. You know, ROH had the best in the world 2011. That was a really good show. And then you have the Summer of Punk. But it all kind of started, I was very much still watching it, and I was watching every week on Monday night. And this was a moment that I'll never forget. Just sitting at home, like 9, 10 o'clock, and you're like, Okay, when are we going to get, like, who's the host of WrestleMania? You know, you don't care who the host of WrestleMania is. He's the host of WrestleMania. is kind of just an asinine thing. It's a gimmick. Now we see Hulk Hogan do it, and everybody boos him. Honestly, I would love for them to do it every year just for the sole sake of them booing him. But that's a different conversation. And this is another instance where when you don't hear any rumor or any window, you become a fan again. And this is an exact moment where I realize, like, I'm always going to be a fan of stuff like this. It's the second they cut all the lights out and then all of a sudden you see the electricity. And then you hear, if you smell, the second that hit, I about was like complete and utter shock and the energy that came through my body that night. Oh, my God. I was up all night. I was texting all my buddies like, dude, dude, turn on Raw right now. Like that was the moment where it's like, go turn it on. The Rock is back in WWE. It was a complete shock to the system. And then obviously it was like you tuned in and you kept it locked in. The show went like 20 minutes over. If I, if I had my DVR, my DVR would have just ran over it, would have just completely skipped over a good half of his promo. But I can remember watching that live. Then the next morning I woke up, I'm pulling up the promo and I'm watching it again and again and again and again. So damn good. Probably one of my favorite moments. It's that feeling of him returning was so damn good. And I think at the end of the day, the latter day rock, the 2011 to 20, 2013 run, that was what WWE needed. It was that shot in the arm. Because, again, it felt like it was losing a lot of steam in 2011. You had the Miz as champion, and that just didn't draw that well. You had the whole Nexus, the burial of the Nexus. And you just went into 2011 with a little bit of a, like a, <laughs> but 2011, after the rock came out and just like he brought the he, he raised the stakes for what would have been and should look be looked at as a very mediocre WrestleMania WrestleMania 27 it'll never be in my top 10 it'll always be towards that bottom 10 because of the fact that you had a lot of really crap in there but the rock was the gem that made you interested in this kind of overall dud of a card at least it's just my opinion it was something that it needed and lost a ton of steam for me in terms of pro wrestling, the product in 2011. And then obviously the summer of punk really helped matters as well, which I think we're going to get to 
a little bit further down the road. All right, let's get on over to NXT here on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.70 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. And this is a really interesting show in terms of the overall booking and the arc of everything. Starts off Dakota Kai taking on Mercedes Martinez in the opener. Really solid stuff. Good reversals early on. There was a lot happening. There was a really bad like leapfrog spot early on that I kind of just overlooked. But when I kind of rewatch and... It's the idea of some of the spots in the match. That was something that stood out and looked like they both were going for different things, and it just was absolutely woof. Martinez shined here, though, with a tremendous like trio of double underhook suplexes. I hadn't seen anything like that. So, again, it was kind of like the three amigos, but looked so much more badass. Honestly, great stuff here. Then towards the end of the match, Raquel Gonzalez got involved by standing between Mercedes and Dakota. And then Kai tried to strike the ref so Raquel could punch her lights out, but Martinez counter rear back and knocked down the NXT Women's Champion. Then Martinez like, caught Kai as she was going for a kick and then like threw her, her leg down and then obliterated her with a damn knee. And, you know, Kai folded up like a chair. I was like, what the hell just happened? He just stood there like completely shocked. And then... Gonzalez absolutely destroyed Martinez with a big boot to get her seat in. The match gets thrown out. Martinez wins by DQ. Good finish. Sets up the inevitable match between Kai and Gonzalez. And then Raquel continued to dominate here using her strength. Throwing Martinez into the plexiglass stood tall to end the segment. Love the match and love the finish and the way they're setting it up. Because these two could have like one hell of like a match at a takeover down the road. We go backstage and the NXT Women's Tag Team Champions are out to hype up the tag title match for next week. Then all of a sudden, roses are given to the team. And then Frankie Monet walks in, a name I'm still not used to, and says and pulls out an envelope or a note that says it's from Dexter Loomis. And, of course, you can kind of about imagine maybe Frankie Monet is having a little fun with this to kind of mess with them and kind of create some head games. Why the hell not? All of a sudden, we go to a pre-tape with Cameron Grimes. He's at a watch shop. And again, his gimmick has been great with the Dogecoin, the GameStop, all that stuff. This is the next logical step of it. And I love the fact that he's out there buying expensive stuff. He's looking at some watches to say, you know, it's to be continued. I can't wait to see what's coming up next. And by the way, what comes next is probably my favorite segment, just in terms of, like, general, like, I'm like, it's amazing what they're doing. Because they're actually because what he did, I pop for so hard. I'll talk about it in a few minutes. But then you have grizzled vets are out in the ring, suited up, not to wrestle, but just actually wearing suits, and they look dapper in them. They talk about the main event tonight involving MSK and say they deserve a title shot, not Legado del Fantasma. And they accuse of Champa and Timothy Thatcher's back. A huge nice pop for him from the faithful crowd at the CWC. And really good trash talk then. Timothy reminds the group of Grizzly Young Vets of the champ from NXT TakeOver Cardiff. And Champa takes his shoe off because he hates one of the members of GYV and then attacks both the people, both the members of the group with the shoe. Solid segment. We get to see a little bit more of a B story in the tag team division. Obviously, the A's can be more about MSK being fighting champions and more importantly, the feud with Legato Del Fantasma that's starting to build. Then we go backstage again. Man, a lot of a lot of interviews and video packages. So we get Mackenzie Mitchell's talking to Drake Maverick and Killian Dane. And Dane got them a match with Imperium tonight. Maverick said he was on to Dane and he was afraid that former Big Dama was leaving him for Imperium. And Dane ended the promo saying, in the words of a great man, you got to have faith. And then Maverick's like, did he just quote George Michael at me? Had a pop for that reference. I popped for everything on that. Then Swerve Scott cut a promo after they came back from break, setting up a false Count Anywhere match next week with Leon Ruff, who showed a lot more aggression the last few weeks and brawled with Swerve not too long ago. And I love this, because Swerve Scott deserves more of an opportunity to showcase himself. And two, Leon Ruff has been a really hidden gem in NXT, but now that you actually are building an angle around him, he's crushing it in my mind. 
Then we get to Tony Storm versus Zeta Ramir. Really surprised the fact we get two women's matches in a row. Not complaining. And Storm cuts a promo on Zoe Stark saying she made her famous a takeover and said her next chapter was going to be ending Tony Stark's career, Zoe Stark's career. Excuse me. Why am I saying Tony Stark's? But Zoe Stark, her career is going to end the next time they do face off. Storm dominated throughout the early going. She had a sick-looking German. Like, the force she had on that was ridiculous. And, of course, Storm's just teasing, being a good heel. And she hit, wanted to hit the Storm Zero, then decided, oh, I'm going to do the move from the top rope, which, honestly, if she did it, would have been badass as all get out. But Stark shows up, distracts her, then Ramir rallies and wins with a shooting star press to make Storm look like a damn geek. And she deserves so much better. She's a hell of a wrestler, hell of a hand. She's got a hell of a look. I want to see more from her, and I'm, I was disappointed by that. That said, especially the fact it was a distraction finish, I hate those with a passion. It's lazy booking. I don't like those at all. Then, But Ramir, she had a really good-looking shooting star press. I mean, she's a tall, I mean, she's a lankier female, but the way she went, like her hands almost touched her feet in the rotation. Like, you remember... Like watching Evan Bourne or Matt Seidel now, when you watch him do a shooting star press, the way he angles himself to where it looks like picture perfect, that's exactly what that was. I was like, what the hell? Give me more of that, please. Really cool stuff. Then we get to Bronson Reed taking on Austin Theory. Reed wins. He gets a title shot against Johnny Gargano down the road. And at the beginning, they kind of show the group walking out. You can tell Indy Hartwell just does not want to be there. She's walking around like George Michael after Anvil broke up with him in the rest of development. Reed started out really strong in the match before Theory goaded him into the steel steps, and that was the cue to go to break. No picture in picture. And then we come back, and again, dominant stuff here. Dexter Loomis comes out, tries to apologize to Indy, but she wants nothing to do with him. That goes into the ring for really no reason at all besides the fact the way the finish went. And she says, quote, he talks too much, or you talk too much. And I'm like, yep, Matthew is using that in the next Botchamania, no doubt in my mind, because we know that's exactly what they're going to do with that. Then Hartwell almost gets hit. Loomis saves the day. Theory gets demolished, and then Reed hits a tsunami. So now we'll see Reed facing Gargano for the NXT North American Championship. Fine match here. Really not much else to say on it. It was kind of just there it's more about the angle leading towards Gargano Reed and also what's going on with Indy and Dexter Loomis it's more about the angles now with the wrestling family if you will or the way we go backstage and MSK thank Kushida for taking him under his wing and helping them helping their transition into NXT it said three was better than one and Kushida said tonight they're called MS Kushida I like that basic but effective and also you can just tell MSK is having the time of their life right now. The way they're just having almost, it almost feels like they're having like freedom to a certain extent with their promos. It's not, you know, the the red stoner gimmick of like the past. But honestly, this freaking works. And then they go to the back. Gargano's frustrated, blaming Dexter Loomis for Theory's loss. And also Candace responds saying it's mind games from Shotzi and Ember. And that Indy walks away determined. So she's got some unfinished business. And then we get to Imperium, Fabian Aichner and Marcel Barthel taking on Drake Maverick and Killian Dane. And the entire match just basically played up on Maverick's paranoia. Dane started out the match, and he was dominant, using the size against his opponents in the opening moments. Dane tagged in Maverick after slapping him in the Drake Maverick in the chest. Like, that was crazy. And he threw him over the top rope on Barthel. On Barthel excuse me. Really cool stuff. Then we get to Maverick, really proving why he is such a great babyface. Because he kept having believable kind of comebacks. And they weren't like full-blown comebacks, but they started and then they kind of got squashed. Because again, he's a smaller guy, and they did a great job putting that all together. The hat, the hot tag kept getting cut off. Ding was yanked off the apron. Maverick got decapitated. Dane that comes out like a house on fire, even though he's not the legal man. Throws both of them out. Wolf. Was about to go hit him with a chair shot, but couldn't do it. Obviously, these two were previously with Sanity. That is some really good long-term booking if they do build towards something like this. Maybe you know Imperium loses Alexander Wolf, and those two go.
go their own way and bring in Drake Maverick. I don't know. But it's at least an interesting little little tidbit, if you will. Then Dane almost took care of half of Imperium, but Wolf keeps him from doing anything. Maverick then gets hit with the Eurobomb, and Imperium comes away with the victory. So we get to see this kind of be resolved, right? Because it feels like Dane isn't going to turn on Drake Maverick, but at least now we get to see maybe some cracks being shown in Imperium where now one of their lesser guys, Alexander Wolf, obviously he's not Walter who's leading the group. So who's to say he doesn't wind up leaving sooner rather than later? And then we go back to Cameron Grimes at the watch shop. Maybe my favorite part of the show, Grimes finds a perfect watch. He says, Karen Cross would hate it since it doesn't go TikTok. Love that. And Grimes puts it on. He's looking at it. He's like, oh, man, this is an awesome watch, baby. And then Ted DiBiase is behind. That's a nice watch, but it's not a million-dollar watch. And then they cut away from them showing the two watches compared. And then Cameron Grimes turns around, sees Ted, and Ted lets out that classic laugh. And I pop for that so much. It was one of my favorite NXT just backstage pre-tape segments they've ever done. It is perfect. It was effective. And it was simple. Sometimes it's all you got to do to make me pop. Then you get for the NXT Women's Tag Team Championships, Jesse Kamea and Aaliyah taking on the defending champs, Shotzi Blackheart and Ember Moon. First thing in my notes, Robert Stone's still a thing. God, I hate him. It's all set up, though. Blackheart and Moon attack Hartwell and LeRae, who set him up by basically using some cupcakes and some flowers. All of a sudden, they just start beating up on him like crazy. And that's how it all ends. And you have Robert Stone trying to take the NXT Women's Tag Team titles, even though the match had never started. Making him look even more like a kind of goon, a geek, whatever you want to call him. And they always have a really good interview with Arash Markazi, who had an interview with Adam Cole, who who continues to be like one of the best heels in the business. He just oozed that charisma there of being a heel, taking down Kyle O'Reilly, who's now is Kool-Aid Cassidy for me. He's not Orange Cassidy, but he's coming close to it with his new gimmick. And also, did Cole have spray on tan during that promo? Because it looked like he had a little bit extra glow on him compared to normal. And also next week, next week's women's tag team championship match is going to be a street fight, and they say a ratings war isn't a thing anymore. They also show a promo for the Diamond Mine, which could be Tessa Blanchard, could not be, but also maybe immediately think is Dustin Poirier showing up to WWE before the match against Conor McGregor. If so, hell yeah. Then we get to the main event: Kashida and MSK taking on Legado del Fantasma, and it's weird seeing the group get a jobber entrance where they showed up after they came back from break. Kashida and Joaquin Wild opened up the contest. They took the faces took control here early on in the match. So tall as they went picture in picture, the speed. And this was exactly what you'd expect from these two teams. All of cruiserweights, all just high spot, high spot, high spot. And there's no complaining here with that. That's absolutely what needed to be done. Hills took over during the break. Escar quickly locked in a rest hold as they came back. Faces tried to take over, but Legado del Fantasma dominates. Escar at one point power bombs Kashida through the table. And she just like selling his shoulder the rest of the match and just kind of is there. Ringside. Then you have Nash Carter laid out by throwing him into the steps. From that point on, it's all Legado del Fantasma. Wesley's the only one still there. He tries to rally back, can't get anything done. Nash Carter gets a hot tag, but Carter gets stopped with a big enziguri. Kashida tries to go back in, but then Escobar hits the Phantom Driver on him, and then Wild and Mendoza hit their finisher. It's all over. One hell, and I'm, I'm a guy that doesn't like the six-man tags because sometimes they feel a little bit forced. This one didn't feel too forced, and I honestly loved it. It was really good stuff here from start to finish from these two. So cannot wait to see more out of these guys. And more importantly, I'm interested to see where all this goes. Could we wind up seeing an evolution-esque angle where they hold all the belts they can, like the, the tag team, the Grooseway? Who's to say by the end of ne- next NXT TakeOver? They're not tag and cruiserweight champs. It's all kind of intriguing. We'll see what happens. Appreciate you listening in to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Right before we wrap things up, I want to kind of do something in the spirit of the NFL draft this past weekend. Because, well, I decided to have fun with it and go ahead with a no-holds-barred pro wrestling draft. For those who want to do this, 
Check out journeyofwrestling.com. I made I used one of the most popular scenarios they have to put together this draft. It'll be between AEW, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and New Japan. They're all treated as separate brands and, in this sense, treated as different companies. And I went 15 rounds, and there are some requirements. Not just, oh, hey, grab all the main eventers and good luck, God bless. No, we actually, actually spent time figuring out how I wanted to make my own promotion. And especially with 15 people to start. Well, I will wind up adding free agents, obviously, but that's a different conversation. So we started off with two tag teams. That's four people, three women, seven, two main eventers. That's going to be nine. And then we have five main eventers. That leads us to 14. The last round, I wanted to make reserve for managers, legends, and anything else. But also... You've got to draft main eventers in the first two rounds. The other rounds can be mid-quarters, tag team, or women's division, and tag teams, and then you have your managers in the final round. It's all set up deliberately. So we go through this rapid-fire style. We'll want to put in some images up on our Twitter page, at Caden Strong Style. Make sure you follow us today. Round one makes the most sense. Again, Kenny Omega, your number one draft pick. SmackDown gets Roman Reigns, top heel in wrestling today. MGF, hottest heel going. He's going to NXT. WWE Monday Night Raw selects Bobby Lashley. Mystic Man's running this thing, so he wants to have big hosses. I agree with that. New Japan rounds that with Kota Ibushi, stealing a major potential feud between Kenny and Kota, at least right now. Because in my mind, I think I want to book a part a partnership to make this thing happen, especially if you put these two as top champions. I would love that. AEW then selects John Moxley in the second round. SmackDown takes the veteran edge. NXT, despite the language barrier, takes Tetsuya, Tetsuya Naito. Raw selects Drew McIntyre. New Japan takes Jay White, smarmy heel that can play foil to Ibushi very well. AEW, they go Cody Rhodes. SmackDown gets Randy Orton. NXT picks Adam Cole, who's a fringe main eventer, according to the system, which, by the way, in case you don't know, and you haven't played Journey of Wrestling yet, which you should, if you love kind of the these be-the-manager type things, this is really cool. So they have a system where it's all based off of points. And if you have a character that's 800 or above, that is considered a main eventer. And Adam Cole is very close to being a main eventer, so he got to be in this third round. Raw takes Sheamus. New Japan takes Tanahashi. Round four, Hangman Adam Page goes to AEW. Daniel Bryan goes to SmackDown. NXT gets Will Ospreay, because why not? You have a Cruiserweight Championship. Let's go ahead and use that. Raw takes Karrion Cross. New Japan snatches up Walter. Raw is furious at this one. AEW takes Kevin Owens in round five. SmackDown brings in AJ Styles. NXT gets Finn Balor. Braun Strowman to Raw and his choo-choo train too. And then Bray Wyatt may be the most intriguing one of them all going to New Japan because I think his gimmick could work really well as the Fiend, especially if you make it to where when he takes the mask off, treat it like Jushin Thunder Liger when he becomes Kishin Liger to where it's a different persona. It's even more terrifying. That'd be badass. Round six, Cesaro is going to all AEW, which would be fantastic. Jey Uso to SmackDown. Keith Lee goes to NXT. Tommaso Ciampa to Raw. And then Evil makes his way to New Japan Pro Wrestling. Round seven, Johnny Gargano makes it to AEW. Miz on SmackDown. Sammy Guevara to NXT. Biggie to Raw. Kenta to New Japan. Then we get to round eight. We move on to the women. You got Sasha Banks. She's part of AEW. Charlotte Flair to SmackDown. Asuka is going to go back to NXT. Raw takes Rhea Ripley. And New Japan takes Io Shirai. So I would love to see them kind of do something with evil, but, you know, I'm sure they won't do something like that. Round nine, Becky Lynch goes to AEW. Bianca Belair sticks around the blue brand. Bailey goes to NXT. Raw gets Raquel Gonzalez. And then New Japan goes with Karushita to round out round nine. Then round 10, we go Kaylee Ray to AEW, one of the top heels in NXT UK. She goes there. SmackDown gets Alexa Bliss. They revert back to Prefiend. NXT goes with Dakota Kai. Raw gets Nia Jackson. Shayna Baszler is the final woman picked in this draft. She goes to New Japan Pro Wrestling. Then we get to 11 through 14. I'll just go ahead and go, give you the tag teams for each promotion. The Young Bucks and Lucha Bros went to AEW. New Day and Street Profits jumped to SmackDown. FTR and the Hardys go to NXT. And then we're going to go with a little odd couple team on Raw. Lance Archer and Damian Priest. If it doesn't necessarily work, you can make it a singles group again and put something else together. 
Brian Cage and Ricky Starks go to Raw. Then you have the Gorillas of Destiny and the Good Brothers. You can have a Bullet Club Civil War-esque thing between these two, which probably would be kick-ass and tons of censorship would need to be required. Then we round it out with round 15, AEW getting Don Callis. SmackDown gets Paul Heyman. NXT's nabs Shane McMahon. can be more of an authority figure. Raw gets Taz. And then New Japan grabs Gato more for his booking ability. Could have been better? I would definitely think so. But overall, this is a great start to what can be a great promotional war. Yes, some main eventers like Jericho and Okada got overlooked. But I couldn't make this all main eventers. That's why I limited myself to two and these two guys, I'll build the territory around. Each territory will be built around these two guys, and then we can add more. We can add more free agents. Who's to say that down the road, Chris Jericho doesn't join AEW or NXT or even does a New Japan run and gets a run with the belt? Who's to say? Because we're just going with strictly a draft format because I wasn't going to do 50 rounds. I wanted to keep it a relatively decent number because I couldn't do seven rounds like the NFL draft. I obviously couldn't do two rounds like the NBA, and I sure wasn't going to do like the 100 rounds that we see the MLB draft do. I wanted to keep it a nice, relatively small number, because if I did, if I didn't, it was going to be a completely insane project I would have given up halfway through. That's why I limited myself and made sure to pick the best guys that are going to help make make each territory great in their own way, and more importantly, book towards the philosophies because again we're dealing in fantasy but at the same time we want to make it as realistic as possible because obviously i don't think vince mcmahon would know what to do with somebody like a kenny omega or even an mgf or sammy Guevara. i think he'd work they work best in nxt because that'll be run by triple h smackdown could very well be run by paul Heyman in this sense or stephanie mcmahon who's to say that you have some of that shane mcmahon uses an authority figure maybe a lot like jim Cornette was used in the TNA days, where he popped up every now and again just to resolve disputes, that's how you book things through. That's how you follow through on certain things. So to be honest with you, that's the way I kind of have it in this booking brain of mine. But appreciate everybody for listening in to the podcast. Had to switch over to a different studio to record this last bit. But appreciate everybody for listening in to the Cage Strong Style Podcast. Make sure you leave a five-star review while you're at it. And until next time, enjoy all the professional wrestling and subscribe to us. However, you get your podcast because we're on damn near every single podcast there is. And again, enjoy the pro wrestling. I'll talk to you later.